0: Please be advised that this podcast explores the topics of death, burial and exhumation and features the names of people who are now deceased. If this is the first time you're listening, it will make more sense if you start with episode one. The inscriptions are just a really fantastic snapshot of Sydney society. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. This episode, we're taking you on a tour of the Devonshire Street Cemetery. You'll be hearing from historians Lisa Murray, Peter Hobbins, Katie Gilchrist, and James Dunk, who'll help us understand what the final words etched into these headstones can tell us about life and death in 19th century Sydney.
1: Mrs Frances Mintz died 11th of November, 1828, aged 64 years. She arrived in the First Fleet in 1788. After visiting England three times, died here much respected by all who knew her.
2: The moment of death was very important in this sort of Georgian period and the idea of the good death, being able to sort of proclaim your religious faith and to not be complaining, that was one thing that was very important. but. If you were going to die and it was suddenly, it was this opportunity to warn other people to prepare themselves because you never know.
3: John Toole died 7th of May, 1844, aged 70 years. Mortal, reflect as here I lie. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so must you be. Prepare to follow me.
2: But they do also provide us with some quite graphic descriptions of how people died, talking about how they were struck down by lightning or bitten by a snake or, you know, fell off their horse drunk. And these are, you know, these are really frank kind of descriptions of the moment of death.
3: William Oliver, killed by a bullock cart.
2: There are some really interesting descriptions.
3: William Jackson... Was carelessly rode over and killed, returning from the races, 21st of May, 1831, aged 21 years. Oh, Hennessy, you did me kill and would not pay my doctor's bill. Your drunkenness has caused my fall, but consider you must come when God doth call.
2: It's something that gets weeded out, so to speak, as the these sort of funerary practices evolve in the 19th century. And as cemetery trustees and the burial of the dead becomes more and more regulated the religious chaplains and the religious trustees of their different areas actually set up all these sort of regulations about all inscriptions had to be approved by the trustees and and the same with the headstone designs. so they actually start to censor what could be on headstones but what we see in the devonshire street cemetery is the uncensored version of of death in Sydney. It gives us this physical and frank discussion about how people experience life and death in Sydney.
4: Elizabeth Cleave died 7th of November, 1843, aged 67 years, a fond mother, She landed only 15 days previously in good health from England to join her second son after an absence of nearly 19 years.
5: The incredible isolation of New South Wales from both Europe and North America through a lot of the 19th century was both a blessing and a curse in terms of infectious diseases. The blessing was that the sailing voyage that could take between three and six months to reach Sydney meant that if there were infectious diseases on board a ship, they would certainly kill people on board, but there'd be plenty of advance warning and therefore a chance to quarantine the ship.
6: Here lieth the remains of Eliza Kinsella, who departed this life May 29th, 1822, aged 13 years. My parents, dear, from tears refrain, you have the loss, but I the gain. Weep not therefore, but happy be, and hope in heaven, you shall me see.
5: That system worked very well, by and large, but diseases usually eventually found a way through, whether it was scarlet fever, diphtheria, influenza, smallpox, bubonic plague, typhoid fever, typhus fever, they all eventually found ways to come ashore. Then it reached virgin territory, then it reached the children, who'd been born in Australia, whose parents and maybe even grandparents had been born in Australia, who'd never been exposed to this disease before. And they had no immune response whatsoever. And there were certainly no vaccines for any diseases other than smallpox, pretty much through all of the 19th century.
6: Martha Mary Weavers, who departed this life January 13th, 1829, aged five years. Beneath the sleeping infant lies to earth her body's lent, More glorious shall hereafter rise, though not more innocent. When the archangels trump shall sound, and souls to bodies join, Millions wish their lives below had been as short as thine.
5: Children died in appalling numbers in colonial Australia. That wasn't unusual. They also died in appalling numbers in England and on the ships coming to Australia as well. And it seems really tragic to us now to see two, three, even four children out of a family of 10 dying before they reached the age of 8, 10, 12 years old. But at the time, that was quite normal. Similar diseases that affected large numbers of children were scarlet fever, diphtheria, croup and measles. Now, most of these diseases we still know about today, we still immunise our children against them mostly today, but in the 19th century they were potentially fatal.
6: John Joseph, son of Colonel and Mrs. Anderson, died 1st of February 1841, aged 9 years and 5 months, died of scarlatina. Mary Ann, only daughter of John and Mary Lucas, died 18th of February. 1822 aged 11 months and 14 days
5: the measles outbreak in sydney in 1867 killed about 750 people 700 of them were children and most of those children were aged less than four years old as well so you know, for a population that was vastly smaller than our one today, that was a massive impact right across society, but particularly concentrated in people living in more humble circumstances. They're often living in closed quarters or they're living in institutions like the Benevolent Asylum or the Randwick Children's Asylum, or it's spread through church or Sunday school or increasingly through the school system that particularly becomes uh, widely established in the 1870s. But it's through a lot of these social networks or shared cesspits or shared... Water tanks that are, you know, a communal resource, you don't have a toilet in your house, and you certainly so don't have running water in your house, so you have to go to these communal places. That's where people cough and spit and sneeze or they wipe their bottom and they use their hands to, to turn on the tap. All of these things happen and help spread disease very quickly.
1: Mary Ann Underwood, wife of Mr. James Underwood of Sydney, died 9th of February 1825, aged 28 years. Also, Lucy Underwood, died 23rd of October 1824, aged one year and nine months and 25 days. Also, Elizabeth Underwood, died 23rd of May 1825, aged six months.
6: Miss Elizabeth Joseph, died 8th of July 1841, aged 11 years and four months died of scarlet fever.
5: There was a huge proportion of children and mothers who died during the process of childbirth, often through infections, but also through sometimes through exhaustion. So you could have 20 to 30% sometimes of uh, mothers delivering babies could be dying at certain points in time. And that infant mortality and maternal mortality is a real indicator of the overall health of our society.
4: Anne Devlin... Wife of Captain Arthur Devlin, she died 13th of February 1841 after giving birth to a beautiful daughter. She left a husband and five infant children, aged 26.
5: The difficulties of living, often working children, you know, they might be 10 or 12 by the time they were working and exposed to all sorts of industrial risks, not having the strength to get themselves out of tricky situations or not having simply the experience to realise something was risky. That was certainly one way that many children could die. Joseph Jennings Walker, aged 10 years and six
6: months, the adopted son of Joseph and Hannah Jennings, died 28th of June, 1836. He was crushed by the falling of a wall in York Street, which was left in a dangerous state. He was a promising pupil at Sydney
5: College from its commencement. Something we don't think that affects us these days, even though I suspect it really does, is that in the 19th century, there was a very strong belief, particularly amongst the more well-to-do, that disease was not only about your health but it was about your moral standing and about your social status as well and that there were diseases that particularly affected the poorer classes or the humble classes as they were often known so that might be for instance typhus fever we now know that was spread by lice that tended to gather in clothing and in confined tightly packed spaces but at the time it was seen to be a disease of dirt of filthy people who lived you know on dirt floors or in poorly ventilated conditions. So it was seen to be a disease that absolutely associated with poor people. And if you had the same symptoms in a very well-to-do citizen, you wouldn't call it typhus, you would call it a different disease. And there was a belief that, you know, people's intemperate habits uh, and their moral standards could be reflected in the sorts of conditions that manifested in their bodies. Jean,
0: wife of William Goldsworthy, after giving birth to her first child, both died 14th December, 1846, aged 28 years.
2: One of the things about early headstones is that they record social connections and networks, which is very important. They're creating a new society halfway around the world. Half of them, you know, or more than half of the people in society are convicts. So there's a real sense of, uh, social and class differentiation that needs to be made.
5: Here rests the body of John Lewin, who departed this life eighteen nineteen, aged 49 years. In him, the community has been deprived of an honest man and this country of an eminent artist in his line of natural history painting in which he
1: excelled. He is gone.
2: But there's also this opportunity to recreate yourself, you know, a convict made good.
1: In sacred respect to the remains of Mr. James Squire, late of Kissing Point, who departed this life May the 16th, 1822 at the age of 67 years. He arrived in this colony on the first fleet. Under his care, the hot plant was first cultivated in this settlement and the first brewery erected.
2: The tombstone is this really important public memorial to actually record social connection, networks, achievements, as well as connections to back home, where they were born and so on, but also really where they stood in society in Sydney.
3: Alexander Ferrier Cuthill, native of Fort Varsha, Scotland, who arrived in this colony as a surgeon on an immigrant ship in the year 1831, died in Sydney, 1st May, 1853.
1: Thomas Pryor who arrived in the First Fleet in 1788, died 24th of July, 1836, aged 88 years.
2: And of course, we have to remember that these tombstones, it's rarely the deceased who's actually sorted all of that out. It's the family and friends who do it. And so often that recognition, particularly in the early headstones, that actually say, erected by so-and-so, whether it be the wife, whether it be the business partner, but they're actually saying, hey, This is important and and we are important in society.
3: John Cannell, unfortunately killed on the 23rd November, 1841, whilst in the execution of his duty as a constable in the Sydney police, aged 21 years. Also his infant son, John Cannell, erected by his widow.
2: And, of course, there wasn't official registration of birth, deaths and marriages until 1856. So prior to that date, a headstone may be the only record of someone in society. And, of course, not everyone got a headstone too. So I think the other thing we need to remember when we're going walking through a cemetery is to not only look at the headstones but to look at the gaps and ask, who didn't get a headstone? Why is this area apparently not used? Well, most of the time it will have been used, but it's just that those people don't have a memorial.
5: Many deaths in Sydney weren't due to infectious diseases, but just due to the risks of everyday life or those things that we take for granted now, like
3: going for a swim. Robert Howe, government printer, born London, 30th June 1795 and drowned off Fort Macquarie, 29th January 1829, aged 34 years.
5: New South Wales in the 19th century was often a really brutal place to live, and it wasn't necessarily designed to be brutal in the sense of the convict system. It just was a hard place to live, that people made a living through physical labor, that they worked in a tannery, they worked as stonemasons, they worked actually building things or making bricks. So there were actually quite a lot of injuries that were occupational in nature. I mean, I remember reading a dreadful case of a doctor showing his son around a brewery and this poor boy fell into a vat of boiling beer and died. In addition, you had exposure to things like horses. Mr. William Warren, late of York Street, who in the meridian of his life, by a fatal fall from his horse, was so mortally injured as to cause his death. You know, horses kicked or threw a large number of people because they were everywhere. And so there were many deaths caused by horses or runaway carts or people falling under the wheels, whether intoxicated or not.
3: Mr. Alexander Rupert Rutledge of Elizabeth Street, Sydney, killed by a wagon passing over him on the 18th of October, 1834.
5: Drownings were one of the main unexpected causes of death in the 19th century. So you see groups like the Royal Humane Society being established precisely to help guide some sort of resuscitation understanding and also to reward people for trying to rescue victims of drowning. You know, it was a major cause of death.
6: Caroline, infant daughter of N.G. and Louise Watkins, accidentally drowned 24th of January, 1836, Each two years and seven months.
5: I think the other thing that we just don't even think about is the water supply. Sydney had a notoriously bad, filthy, disgusting, brown, wriggling water supply through a lot of the 19th century, and there was a whole series of inquiries and scandals about it through that period. So sometimes people comment that, in fact, it looks like Sydney residents drank a lot of alcohol in the 19th century beer, gin, whiskey, porter, stout, all these sorts of drinks, I actually think that was quite healthy, in a sense, because these drinks were all fermented or distilled. So they were, in a sense, in our modern understanding, they would have been purified. They may not have been entirely good for you, but they may have actually been healthier than drinking water that you got out of a stream or out of the gutter running down the road or the, the local pump or something like that
3: mr john barrett died 19th of august 1861 aged 44 years native of the city of dublin ireland when blooming man is snatched away from he held most dear the widow weeps for him she loved and silent sheds
5: a tear whatever doctors believed in the 19th century it didn't necessarily tally with the general run of the population too many People in Sydney simply couldn't afford to have a doctor come and call on them. So they often had their own medical ideas and their own home remedies. On the one hand, you might find people who collapse suddenly. Maybe these days we would call it a stroke, but at the time it would be called a visitation of God because they were struck down without any external cause and there was no real post-mortem diagnosis of why they had died. They had simply collapsed and died and it was seen as a divine providence. So you had a strong religious sense that still went through a lot of people's ideas of life and death and of how arbitrary these ends could be.
1: maria Ann Carrad. Died 20th of November 1825, aged 42 years. A loving mother and virtuous wife, alive and well and dead within a quarter of an hour.
6: Sarah Costolo, wife of Patrick Costolo, died 20th of February
2: 1842, aged 22 years. No more than
0: 20 months a bride.
5: On the other hand you do have a sense that for instance conditions like nostalgia which technically means a sort of a longing or a sadness for home could actually lead to people pining away and dying as well so the ideas of dying of a broken heart or of nostalgia say for the old country were absolutely prevalent through the middle of the 19th century and it was considered also by many doctors to be a credible cause of death too so There are ways in which we would now never consider that somebody could die simply from a broken heart or from nostalgia, but it made perfect sense at the time.
4: Catherine Jane, who departed this life in the 22nd year of her age, having never recovered from the shock and affliction occasioned by the awful and sudden death of her husband, who met his fate by the falling of his horse. Likewise, their son Alexander aged two days.
7: It's a corrective almost to the onwards and upwards story that we sometimes have about colonial society, which is, everyone's striving for wealth and everyone's coming and improving their circumstances. Actually, these are unsettled, anxious places often. You have a, a very mobile society where people come and go, and people are looking for something. I mean, the very strain of making your own life again, or the very strain of the possibility, the chances that you might have to, for wealth or in, uh, land. In fact, when, you, when things don't go that way, yeah, I think that strain is hard to bear as well. And almost the society itself is people talk about Sydney as a grasping sort of place. You know, it's a there is a materiality to it. You know, you don't have the same kinds of codes and cultural language that you might have in other societies and so things are a little more about money and land, the numbers of sheep and cattle. And yet, almost that's inward looking and if you look outwards or look kind of from the side we see actually uh, uh, people who are struggling with their own problems that they made in the land of someone else that they been displaced from that land. Sacred to the memory of Thomas stirrup
3: Amos Esquire, solicitor of this colony, who deceased on the 19th of November, 1819, the victim of deeply
7: wounded feelings. In a way, that's a, a, a culture that's less medicalised than our culture. We might feel the need for a, a word-like depression, or other words, um, in a way that they might not have felt. They might have been very comfortable saying that It was grief that led to this death and leaving it at that. And so those gravestones, I imagine, are perhaps even purposefully vague. And they're not diagnoses, of course, but in some ways they they might refer to diagnoses or suggest them. And yet still, in a sense, a testimony to the strength of their feelings, the strength of their character, perhaps, Um, and also a witness to the, uh, the burdens of their lives in this place. To the memory, of Frederick Gustav,
0: infant son of John and Elizabeth Weiss, who died on the 2nd of May, 1855, aged 17 months and seven days. Sweet innocency form lies here, lamented by his parents' dear, who hopes at last in endless joy to meet again their lovely
3: boy.
5: We often forget now that for the first 50 or so years of its existence, Sydney was run largely under military control. And in fact, the first governor of New South Wales who didn't have a military or naval background was appointed in 1867. So in the 1820s and into the early 1830s, we really saw hospitals were primarily set up for the military, who were still a major presence in the colony, as well as for convicts. And the reason that they were there for convicts was that they were a valuable workforce. And so actually treating them and getting them back to work was an important part of maintaining the colonial economy. Through this period, in the 1820s and 1830s, the free settlers and freed convicts had no hospital system at all. So although they might ask to be admitted to the convict or military hospital, they were most likely to be turned away, particularly, for instance, if they were a pregnant, unmarried woman. In the middle of the 19th century, it's hard for us to imagine now, but it was ludicrous to imagine the government actually taking care of your health and particularly providing a hospital system, let alone subsidised medical care for the general citizen. At that time, people basically had to pay to call a doctor to their home or they could try to get into a charitable institution like the Benevolent Asylum or the Sydney Infirmary and Dispensary. Patrick Harnett church of the Metropolitan Church of St Mary. His skill in medicine was great and he used it for the relief of the poor. He died on the 12th of September 1844, aged 34 years. Also his son, William Harnett, died the 5th of April 1840, aged 10 months. But these were still expensive options. The price of admission overnight would cost you the same as several loaves of bread. Now, if you were living on the bread line, that was a no-brainer. You just simply couldn't afford to go into a hospital, even if you wanted to. And the reason I say that is because hospitals were not a place that you'd go into expecting to come out healthy with a rapidly affected cure. Rather, hospitals were what these days we would think of more as a hospice, a place where the really sick, the incurable, and those who had no other option, for instance, being treated at home, they were all sent there. So, in fact, it was really a place where people went and spent a very long time convalescing or probably dying rather than having a better death at home. And so I think it's interesting that later on as hospital care became more affordable, it was still very expensive to to call a doctor or to go into hospital so that the price of a day in hospital would only be half that of paying for a decent burial with a minister in attendance.
3: William Smith Harvey died 8th November, 1878, aged 43 years, leaving a wife and seven children. William Yardley
5: died from a snake bite on the 5th of December, 1824, aged 45 years. By the mid-19th century, and we're talking here the 1840s and especially into the 1850s, ideas of how to treat illness changed fairly rapidly. This is an era before we had any idea of germ theory, so before we thought of bacteria or microbes causing disease in any significant way. Up until the 1840s, many doctors believed that human health reflected the four humours of the body that had really been with us since the medieval era in fact even back to antiquity and that really most treatments focused on balancing those four humours in the body so for instance if you were seen to be red in the face and hot that meant that you had too much blood and therefore you needed to be bled but it made a lot of medical sense at the time By the 1850s, we would changed to a very different idea of actually thinking that people's constitutions needed to be built up. They needed to either be strengthened so that they could ward off disease or that if they did have some sort of ailment that then we can actually help their body recuperate itself as well. So you see a much stronger focus from the 1850s, both in the community and in the growing hospital sector of providing nutritious broths and soups, reasonably healthy meals uh, and just generally giving them you know, a, a time to recuperate a little bit of rest and care as well. So it's quite a different sense of instead of cutting, bleeding purging people to actually nourishing them and cosseting them a little bit taking care of them some, some more.
3: William Scott died 2nd of May 1837 aged 54 years by one who knew his worth this stone is reared within whose breast his memory is revered.
4: Sydney was dirty and it was polluted and it was thick with smoke and it was noisy and chaotic and it was very unregulated. So people died tragically too often and often in very, very public ways.
3: John Gordon, born at Newtown Stewart, Scotland on 3rd January 1838 and accidentally killed by the explosion of a boiler at the dry dock Balmain on the 28th of March, 1865.
4: So a coroner's inquest was held every time there was a strange, sudden, suspicious, unnatural or unexplained death. It had been a thing of English law dating back to the 12th century. And basically, the coroner would hold an inquest to endeavour to establish how, where, and by what means a person had come
1: to their death. Mary Curran found drowned, first of August, eighteen twenty-one, aged forty-six years, mother of Stora's children.
4: Now, even the the, the the inquest itself was a very public spectacle, being held in a public place such as a, a hotel or a tavern, and the dead body would be there and laid out for all to see, and anyone could attend. So. In that respect, death was literally a very public thing.
3: Joseph Greenaway died 14th July 1827, aged 37 years. Accidentally shot by a pistol ball by one of his most intimate friends, leaving a widow and child.
4: Now the inquest involved the coroner, 12 jurymen, witnesses, neighbours, and whoever else wanted to turn up. So they needed a large room, because in interesting cases, lots of people would turn up and want to listen to the juicy evidence. And also because the body was there as well. The body would be laid out, and for the inquest to be a legally sanctioned court, if you like, the jury had to view the body before an inquest could be held. Now, sometimes the the body would be viewed and then removed to an outhouse, or if there was a morgue nearby, it would be taken there. Sacred to the memory of Esther and Samuel Bradley, inhumanely murdered by their servant on the 15th of August, 1822. It had to be a majority conclusion. They usually agreed, but on occasions where they didn't agree, the coroner couldn't legally release them home. So sometimes they'd have to spend the entire night locked up in the morgue until the coroner reconvened the inquest first thing in the morning and asked them if they'd come to a a decision overnight now a night in the morgue with the body would have been terrifying and quite horrible now refreshments were always provided but sleeping would have been quite tricky and you can only imagine what the conversations would have been because they would not have spent the entire night talking about the case. Now, on on the very few occasions where the the jury didn't agree, the coroner could say, right, well, I need 12 new jurymen and start the proceedings all over again, which was never popular with the public. It was seen as a waste of time, a waste of jurymen's time, and, and a bit of a farce, really. So usually in cases, if it, if there, if it was a, criminal, a potentially criminal case, the coroner would usually pass it on to the Attorney General for him to decide whether it was going to go to the higher criminal courts. Because a coroner's court wasn't a trial, it was an inquest. Even if somebody was suspected of having caused a death, they were not on trial until the jury returned their verdict and then the coroner could hand the suspect over to the police.
0: Elizabeth Jane, died 9th August, 1851, aged 33 years. Dear Mother, do not weep for me. No one can lay the blame on thee. My
4: day was short. My time was less. I'm gone from thee to happiness. But also, even when people died at home, in front of the family, and it would be the women of the family who would deal with the dead body, not a professional undertaker. The women of the family would do the cleansing and the final dressing, and, and, and the body would leave the home, and everyone had seen it and said goodbye, and what have you. So in that respect, Dead, dead people was literally part of, of life.
2: And for me, I think what makes the historic cemeteries interesting is that they are this mix of private memory and public memory. And so it's about families creating a sense of identity and really, really putting their stamp on history. And especially the early in the early colonial period, that was very much in the forefront of people's minds.
0: Next time on The Burial Files.
1: After the railway opened, instead of taking six weeks, it would take six hours.
0: The railways arrive in New South Wales and everything changes, even for the dead. And uh, I forget the price of a ticket, but the corpse rode for free. Fair enough. Many thanks to Lisa Murray, Peter Hobbins, James Dunk and Katie Gilchrist for sharing their knowledge with us. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voices of Annie Finsterer, Jonathan London, Rupert Dagar, Emily Meerish, Brandon Burke, Maya Lair, Steve Bell, Lars Roots, John Day, Paul Bewley, John Duncan Golder, Hilary Catherine Golder, Robin Handley and Poppy, Claudine Wheeling, Thomas Blake, Daisy Millwork, and
5: Kira McDonald. I'm Elise Edmonds.